This is R.J. Rushjuni, Easy Chair Number 386, May the 7th, 1997. I'd like to turn to a letter we received, and it's a very fine letter, so I'd like to read it in its entirety. Although Dr. Rushdooney and the Easy Chair Assembly have more than once graciously discussed topics I have suggested, I would be very interested to hear a discussion of pietism, quietism, and perfectionism as manifested now among Christians and also as specific movements in the past. Do these three terms refer essentially to the same thing? Do these movements or tendencies have worthwhile characteristics? Are there biblical foundations for them? In what way can they mislead us? I enjoyed Dr. Rushduni's poetry uh, session very much. As he has uh, observed several times, mass media and canned productions have muscled into our culture. We eat fast foods and too much of us consume prepackaged fast food culture. The nutritional benefits of both are about the same. We have lost our songs and our poems. My mother had the benefit of receiving most of her schooling in a one-room schoolhouse in Nebraska's Sand Hills region. Some weeks before I received the poetry tape, my mother floored me by reciting from memory a poem she had memorized as a girl, even though she could not have seen a copy of it for many decades. No wonder she loves to memorize psalms now. Finally, thank you for both Donner and Abshire interviews. I've had both lent out to friends within 24 hours of listening to them. This is from Susan Claire Lofel. Thank you very much for your letter. And we shall try to deal with the questions you raised. First of all, pietism, quietism, and perfectionism are uh, different movements, but they are very greatly interrelated. Their basic unity is in the fact that the center is on the individual and his religious experience. It is not on the faith. That's right. In fact, <clears throat> all three have tended to downplay doctrine. <clears throat> it used to be, as I've observed at other times, common for hymns to the Trinity to be an important part of a hymnal, very extensively used. And I believe I told the story once of this elderly woman whose only child was born when she was aging and he was mentally retarded. 
and yet the joy with which they sang hymns to the Trinity, to Holy Ghost be praises, to God the three in one. I can remember them singing that. Well, we have now a great deal of emphasis of a subjective sort. Yes. One hymn I have often cited as an example, a bad example. It has a good catchy tune. Uh, in the garden. Yes. And uh, the chorus, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share uh, with none can compare. As, as we tarry there, none other has never ever known. Yes. yes. I'll never forget the friend, a fellow young pastor years ago, who came from a summer camp and said that the kids wanted uh, certain hymns. And this one choice by a girl, as I recall it, was the hymn about Andy. <laughs> and in uh, incomprehension, he, he looked at the girl and said blankly, Andy? What? song about Andy. Andy walks with me. Andy talks with me. Andy tells me I am his own. Well, <clears throat> that belongs in this whole school right. of subjectivism. That's right. It stresses a purely subjective experience. It does not tell you anything about Christ, his nature, what he has done for us, his atonement, his death, yes, his resurrection, right. none of that. Now, <clears throat> quietism was essentially a Catholic phenomenon. This is not to say it was not very influential in Protestant circles, but it was a Catholic phenomenon. Madame Guyon, G-U-Y-O-N, is the great name there. <clears throat> it was essentially a retreat into your inner being and into a sense of perpetual bliss, <laughs> no matter what was happening. That's right. And it is interesting that uh, quietism was very popular in France in the days before the French Revolution. Yes. And the whole country was falling apart. And here were these people indulging in endless pious gush as they would close their eyes and concentrate on the glories of things spiritual. It was a vast exercise in nothingness. However, it was preceded by pietism which was essentially German and Lutheran, although it spread elsewhere within Protestantism. Pietism, in turn, was really a revival of medieval uh, Catholic piety. 
with pietism there was a downplaying of doctrine. In fact, some expressed a dislike of doctrine. Yes. It was a waste of time. It was dry as dust. They portrayed the great theological works that had preceded them on the part of the reformers, men like Luther and Calvin and others, as dry as dust works. To them, any serious concern in developing the meaning of doctrine, in dealing with the meaning of why Jesus Christ had to die for us, was a waste of time. You just contemplated medieval style, the sacred wounds of Jesus. Calvin Zinzendorf and yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you would go into deep emotion and tears and quaver and shake as you imagined and visualized the reality of the crucifixion. But what did it mean? Huh? I don't know. That would have been their reaction. That's right. I know that was the reaction of one or two I knew as a young man who were very gushy in their piety. Yes. Well, these three movements have been very important and they are still very much with us in different forms with different names. Perfectionism, however, was a variation in that it held that uh, you could very quickly and easily after your conversion attain a perfection a moral perfectionism. This was very prominent in Wesleyan circles. It rested on a very, very weak doctrine of man and his sin. Right. And emphatically, they did not believe in total depravity. In fact, John Wesley a great man in many ways, but a very, very faulty man, went so far as to approve of some of the heretics like Pelagius. He was a man who simply didn't understand the nature of man's depravity. Well, I submit that if you don't understand the full nature of man's depravity, you're going to convert a lot of people. Absolutely. They will be cheap and easy conversions. I've known pastors in some of the perfectionist churches who can get half the people at a revival meeting to come forward, to rededicate their lives to Christ or having backslid, supposedly, <laughs> to be born again. One man told me once he'd been born again at least 12 times. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> these movements have done a great deal to seriously damage Protestantism from within. Yes. They have left Protestantism a shambles. At the same time, the like movements within the Roman Catholic Church have virtually destroyed any theological emphasis and left theology as something for a handful of intellectuals while the people involve themselves in this type of cult, and there are many, such as the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and lack any real knowledge of Christian doctrine. There are, I believe, almost no biblical foundations for these movements. They basically put the entire emphasis on man and his salvation Yes. so that we are not saved to serve, but we are saved so that God can serve us. That's right. And God is supposedly there always waiting hand and foot on us. I've heard in my time some really abominable things. I won't go into them. Made in public testimonies by such people. Oh, yes. How Mm. God did this and that and the other thing just for them. Yes. That the whole of the universe, so to speak, moved... Yes. To please them at a given point in time in history. As though the be-all and end-all of God's being is to look after their tiny, insignificant, and sometimes Absolutely. very absurd demands. Yes. It says, well, as one man who wrote a book on prayer said, if What you need is a barrel of pickles. You pray to God for them and he will give you the barrel of pickles. Now, I find that kind of thing horrifying. Yes. I think at least since World War II, some of the extreme expressions of this sort of thing have abated. Because as our culture became less respectful of Christianity, it started to poke fun uh, at Christians, beginning, of course, before the war with uh, Sinclair Lewis's Elmer Gantry. The Elmer Gantries are many in a city about 60, 65 miles from us, An Elmer Gantry left town almost overnight recently after having left a church in shambles 
and the lives of people in like disarray. Well, I've talked longer than I intended to, but this is a topic I really can get uh, worked up over. So much damage has been done. So many lives shattered. I'm sure one could say, well, so-and-so was helped and they went on to a stronger faith and I'm sure that would be true. And I know from my experience I've seen that, but what I have usually seen is a warping of the lives of people Yes. so that it is not God who is the center but they exactly right. You know, Rush, I think we need to point out also that one characteristic that ties each of these movements together is an almost uniform hostility to biblical law. Um, When you see pietism especially with its very personal um, gushy warm religion or quietism with a totally inner faith. I was talking to some quietistic people one time and I said, well, what is your church doctrine about the resurrection? And they said, oh, we don't talk about divisive things like that. We don't want to divide people. Whatever we believe in our hearts is the truth. And then, of course, perfectionism that always erects an extra biblical standard, um, whatever the minister says or whatever the congregation says. All three of them are always, are virtually always hostile to God's objective law. And Rush, you've encountered this so many more times than I have, and Mark, of course, you've seen it, but whenever I gently introduce that into a conversation, that's harsh and unloving somehow Mm -hmm. to ever talk about biblical law. We'll get letters at Chalcedon, or people will talk to me, and do you at Chalcedon believe in theology, but we believe in Christ. (laughs) But understanding that if you don't have theology, what sort of Christ do you have in the first place? Or... um, you believe in law, but we believe in grace. Understanding that it's not understanding it's impossible to have one without the other. You say, Jesus Christ, Christ, Christos. You're talking Lord. theology. Absolutely. And this is why some of these characters will only say Jesus. That's right. They can't bring themselves to say Christ. That's right. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How often they say it. Um, Mark, what was the name of the book that you and I and Otto Scott, Martin Selbrady, and John Lofton put out together? Uh, the, the Great, great Christian Revolution. Well, the Great Christian Revolution, yes. Your section, Mark, in that was a, without talking about uh, these terms, was really about... Uh, their effect uh, in the church today. Yeah, the um, you talked about these groups being antinomianism. When you basically deny uh, much of Scripture, which dispensationalism does, and especially antinomianism in, in general, 
when you deny much of scripture, what has to happen is you have to make up your own scripture. Absolutely. And, and pietism is famous for making up its its own rules. In addition, because you've destroyed the authority of scripture, um, churches that hold to these ideas tend to have very charismatic mm-hmm. ministers. And I'm not talking about their doctrine, their teachings about the gifts of the Spirit. I'm talking about a very domineering mm-hmm. type of leader mm-hmm. who is, I say it, don't mm-hmm. argue with me. His this this the is law. the rule. This is yeah. this is the law. This yeah. is what God wants. Yeah. And whether it's the length of the skirt or policy about alcohol uh, yes. or tobacco or what you do on, uh, you know, Wednesday night, mm-hmm. uh, this is what God expects of you. And uh, when you re- when you take God's word away, some man's word has to come, whether in whatever form. And that that's that's why many of these uh, ministers they they have to get up there and scream. They have right. to act as the authority. And if and if you get up in the pulpit and scream loud enough, most people don't want to confront somebody who can get that excited about what they say. That's right. It is the law. That's right. They have to get up there and lay down the law. And that's what Jesus warned against. Oh, how powerful is Mark chapter seven? And the Pharisees who substituted. Or how does um, how does Jesus? Jesus phrased it as it is appears in the King James full well. You've basically saying you've substituted your own law, you know, commandments for and the commandments doctrines. of doctors of men for for the Holy Scripture. Um, so many of these people too want God made in man's image. Um, there was a story I wrote in the Chalcedon Report. I think it was um, well, several years ago about a female minister rush. You remember the story? Who was up speaking and? talking about the difficulties people were going through and said, God, we're in trauma and we know if we are traumatized, you are traumatized. Oh, my. And then one of our, I went back and mentioned that in our church and one of our fine members raised his hand facetiously and said, Pastor, let's let's pray a prayer for God. God's really in tough tough times these days, going through all this trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is, a, that is a logical result of the pietistic, quietistic, and perfectionistic spirit. One prominent man in the church... In a recent book, which was reviewed in the Chalcedon Report, actually said, "Let us pray for God." Yes, or forgive God, or something like that too. No, because he is going through quite a, tr- a trial with all the problems in the world. Well, <clears throat> getting back to the name of Jesus, Christ is his title. That is his office. And that's why the New Testament, especially in the epistles, speaks of Jesus Christ. Yes. You know, another point, Rush, that a lot of people miss uh, is that when we say the name of Jesus and pray in the name of Jesus, that doesn't mean the words as much as under the authority of. When we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... The most important thing is not the name per se, although I'm not denying that it's importance, but the authority behind the name. And I think a lot of people miss that point. Whenever we use the name of Jesus Christ, we're speaking as people who should be under his authority. And so much of this pious, um, godly goose pimples, you know, and warm Jesus fuzzies has nothing to do with that. Yes. And it's just so pervasive in the church today. I Rush, you know, we, we get phone calls and letters from people who talk about episodes of people who go to churches and there's nothing there on Sunday except just a sort of 
Oh, what is the um, the sweetness and light religion? You know, mm-hmm. just soft religion. Pietism comes in in a lot of forms. There's an extreme form where there's a lot of specific rules of do's and don'ts, mm-hmm. and uh, you must conform to this standard, or you're or or, or you're wicked. Mm-hmm. And um, but there's also the, the form of let's love one another. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. just boil it all down to love. Yes. Whenever you take a biblical standard and a biblical basis for morality and a biblical basis for man's responsibility and you replace it with anything else, whether it's a specific set of rules or love right. or, or treat all men as brothers mm-hmm. or, or, mm-hmm. or anything else, it's a form of, of pietism and mm-hmm. it's an artificial morality. Yes. And there is, a, as Rush mentioned earlier, there is a there is an, an avid hostility to doctrine or any doctrinal standard. Some years ago, a group of people wanted me to pray at the sort of um, Russian of the National Day of Prayer that they have, and someone asked my advice. I was there at a planning meeting. I said, "Well, we need to have some doctrinal standard for the people who are going to pray." I said, "At least we need to start with the Apostles' Creed." And one of the ministers said, "Well, we don't want to exclude anybody that names the name of Christ." And I said, pray tell, who could name the name of Christ and oppose the Apostles' Creed? And of course, um, they didn't want me there after that. But um, uh, it's that total, uh, you know, it really is, Mark, a universalistic approach that just, um, under the guise of the name of love, and of course, biblically, love is law-based and covenantal, but under the guise of this word, this magic word, love, we allow all sorts of subversions of the faith. And Rush, as you know, this is how the the denominations were lost to liberalism, but it's just as rife today among evangelicals and Lutherans and Reformed and and others. And it really is a it, it is a tragedy. And that's why organizations like Chalcedon and strong churches need to stand faithfully for historic Christian biblical orthodoxy, and not capitulate to this sort of soft um, aversion to orthodoxy and just sort of soft religion. Well, the church has capitulated. The problem now is a restoration to sound doctrine. And it has to begin with an emphasis on the whole word of God. And it requires that we stress doctrine as never before. Yes, that's right. Because without a stress on doctrine and on the law of God, we are disarmed. Yes. We cannot deal with this problem. And it has really eaten the heart out of the churches of the East and the West, yes. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, all have been invaded by this kind of thinking. And its uh, damage has been very, very grave. The presence of uh, quietism I cited as very extensive, and if the quietists were to be believed, they were on the verge of a new order. Uh, But it was the revolution, the French Revolution, To go back to some of the statements I made at the beginning, I called attention to the fact that pietism arose in Germany well after the Reformation. It was in a great 
and powerful way a reaction against the Reformation. It was hostile to the emphasis on doctrine by Luther and by Calvin. It went back to medieval piety with its emphasis on a personal experience. But this was personal experience totally separated from doctrine, totally separated from the life of Christ because it concentrated not on the doctrinal aspects of the faith and what Christ had done, but on emotional reactions to Jesus Christ. Absolutely. It indulged in what can only be called a great deal of pious gush. Now, doctrine, history, law, all these things that are basic to a biblical faith were set aside for a purely personal and emotional reaction. Well, you know full well over your lifetime span you have reacted to some people very emotionally. (laughs) You've been greatly drawn to them without knowing too much about them, but they seem to be a very pleasing person, man or woman, and uh, you felt that uh, they were going to be a force in the community or in the church or in whatever organization you were in. And later on you found out that uh, there was no validity to all your emotional response to them. Well, what the faith historically has stressed is knowledge. Coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior knowing the meaning of his incarnation and of his atonement, his death, his resurrection. Now, you can respond emotionally to that knowledge, but the important point is to know. This is what Jesus was, and this is what he did, and this is why he is relevant to every man to the end of time. But if you downplay doctrine and history and if you feel that uh, sermons stressing doctrine or teachings emphasizing the life of Christ or the giving of the law by Moses and the history of the chosen people of the monarchy of the prophets. All this is unimportant. And you only use the Bible as something that I'm glad, I hope, is not done too much in my our time, but in my earlier years, it was not uncommon for some people, until they were ridiculed out of this practice, to shut their eyes and open <laughs> the Bible and put their uh, finger on a verse. They call it lucky dipping. 
Oh, is that what it is? Lucky dipping, yes. It, it's apparently still done? Yes, oh, oh yes. Should I marry this woman, Lord? Show me whether I should marry her. And, oh, yes. my. Oh, yes, my. that has been done. I've There's a modern version of that. They're on some of the religious TV channels. They're, they're advertising computer programs that will randomly put a Bible verse on your screen. Of course, the actors oh. are saying, I was so blessed by this <laughs> verse that came up on my screen. It just, it just spoke to everything that uh, was, my day was about, and it answered my problem. Well, I hoped it had been ridiculed out of existence. Certainly, when I was young, they began to tell a story of the person who was doing that kind of hunting. He opened the Bible and put his finger on a verse, and it said, And Judas went out and hung himself. And then he tried it again, and his finger hit a verse, Go thou and do likewise. Well, And the third one, he hit it and he says, What thou doest, do quickly. Oh yes, you're right. You're right, I'd forgotten that. Well, this is the kind of thing that pietism brought in. The more mindless, the better. I can recall when I was young, uh, my sense of revulsion at those who ridiculed head knowledge of the oh, Bible. Yes. What they had was a heart knowledge. Mm. And I was uh, only in my teens when I uh, got enough nerve to challenge one uh, man in his twenties on the subject. And, uh, oh, he was contemptuous of head knowledge. And everything was heart knowledge with him. And his heart knowledge didn't uh, go very far. All he knew from one end of the Bible to the other was a lot of key soul savers uh, verses. And he was very angry with him when I told him that he was taking some verses out of context and said I had a damnable head knowledge which was going to lead me straight into hell. Mm. I didn't take kindly to it. Mm. I had nothing to do with that so-and-so after that. Yes. But this is the idiocy it led to. Uh... I can only recall vaguely, I'm glad to say, some of the crazy stories I heard about how God had led this or that person in strange and marvelous ways. And I felt badly because I didn't believe what they were saying. Mm -hmm. And here they were sweet, saved souls. After a while, when I came to know one or two of them a little better, I began to realize they were vague on what truth is. That's right. Now, this kind of emotionalism really took over in the church. And Protestants and Catholics alike became gushy peoples so that 
as the Romantic movement crept into the church. And this type of uh, pietism was aggravated by Romanticism. Yes. The churches became feminine domains. That's right. The number of men who went to church began to wane. There was a time in this country when people actually spoke of the three sexes, men, women, and preachers. <laughs> For a while it was actually spoken of as men, women, and beachers because of the prominence of the Beecher family. <clears throat> it did the faith no good. Now, one of the consequences was this. Because the emphasis of pietism had shifted the religious center from God and the doctrines of the Word of God to man and his response. Emotionalism gave way in time to rationalism. And rationalism meant modernism. That's right. Well, the pietists had been modernists. They didn't say we don't believe in those part portions of the Bible. All they would say is that they're not passages that speak to the heart, therefore they're not important. Well, <clears throat> if you eliminate a great deal of the Bible because it doesn't speak to the heart, you don't have much of a Bible. That's right. And I submit that many modernists have a bigger Bible than some of our pietistic dispensationalists. That's right. So, out of this has come modernism. And I'm not the first person to say so. When I was young, some excellent scholars had uh, dealt with this and called attention to the very close relationship between the two. Yes. And it was not surprising as one scholar pointed out, and I don't recall his name now, because this goes back, I believe, to the 20s. And I was quite young when I read it. <clears throat> Namely, that fundamentalism is given on the one hand in its services to a great deal of emotionalism, especially in those years, and yet... And it's apologetics to rationalism. Yes, absolutely. And that's why the Arminian seminaries have very quickly gone modernist because the collateral of this emotionalism is a rationalism. In each of those three that we're talking about, perfectionism, <clears throat> and quietism and pietism, Rush, there is a real diminution of the judicial aspects of theology. And a prime yes. example is the doctrine of justification in soteriology and the substitution of the importance of regeneration, which for these people means born-againism. 
Mm-hmm. The only thing that is important for them is their decision that they made for Jesus. Um, I think I mentioned before that I occasionally get letters from people with little gospel tracts saying, well, we heard that uh, you never had a conversion experience. And of course, when they say conversion experience, you know what that means. Uh, one of their slinging mucus across the front of the church, jumping and screaming sort of thing. But like both of you here, I was, thank God, raised in a very Christian and a very godly home and taught the gospel from a youth. But for them, the important thing is not the doctrine of justification or Christ's perfect law-keeping righteousness imputed to the account of of the elect, but their own born-again experience. It was, of course, popularized in the 70s by, of course, one of the presidents and... uh, and um, noted, very noted international evangelists who are constantly stressing born again. You hardly ever hear them talk about the doctrine of justification. Yes. Justification by faith alone, because that's a judicial aspect of theology that is not related to man's, not directly related to man's response, as you were saying earlier, Rush. Mm-hmm. So man can't take any credit for it. It has nothing to do with him, yes. and therefore it's just out of league. <clears throat> well, one of the key questions that pietists cannot normally answer is why the cross? That's right. Why the necessity of Christ dying on the cross? Because the law of God requires the death penalty on all sinners. Absolutely. And no sinner can make an atonement for himself because everything he does is tainted by his sin. Yes. It required the sacrifice of a sinless one, the sinless Lamb of God, a vicarious sacrifice, dying in our stead to make atonement for our sins. Now, that doctrine of the atonement and the vicarious sacrifice and the necessity of the law because it is that which requires the death penalty upon sin. Absolutely. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Christ died for us. How? Why? What That's was right. the meaning of it? It's gone. And there have even been theologians who com- confess to believing the whole of the Bible word for word who say they don't know what that meant because they don't believe the law. That's right. Therefore, the cross is just a kind of emotional, experiential thing. Yes. yes. Well, they'll often say the liberals and the evangelicals, the cross is the greatest expression of the love of God, but they don't understand that it's equally the greatest expression of the justice of God. Yes. Uh, if God would not permit his own son to escape from the law of God, from his own law, for violation of the law, that is, dying on behalf of, of us, our imputed sin to him. He obviously has a, has a impeccable view of his own law. And that's just so lost, Rush, as you wisely pointed out. So lost today. And that's why we have a very eviscerated uh, sort of faith. We've cut the heart out of theology, which is the atonement. Well, we have to recognize that these movements which are very much with us 
have to be supplanted right. by the whole word of God, by the teaching of law and of doctrine. And this is a necessity, the pressing necessity in our time. We have sin defined for us in the New Testament in the first letter of John as the transgression of the law. Sin is also defined in First John as in the Greek text where it's clear as anomia, anti-lawism. This is the heart of sin. Yes. The other word for sin, as I pointed out on other occasions, is hamartia, missing the mark. You and I as Christians can be guilty of hamartia, not of anomia, if we are truly Christians. Because instead of being anti-law, we are pro-law. We see it as the justice of God, the righteousness of God, which must be fulfilled, put into practice in us. And that's what Paul tells us, I believe in Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Rush, you know, you, this we've got to get back to the objective authority of the Bible because there's so many people. Occasionally a minister will preach a very powerful message and he... And, of course, he'll go to the back of the church and some antinomian church member will come out and say, Well, Pastor, God really didn't speak to me in that verse today. Mm. As though they have to have some special sort of revelation for the word to be effective. But any time that the word of God is preached, um, it speaks to people because the word of God has objective authority. With assurance or conviction. Absolutely. But there's such, uh, and Mark alluded to it earlier about, what did you read today? Well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me in this verse today, and, and, uh, maybe He didn't speak to me in this verse, and I didn't like this verse as much, and it, it's just, just really pious gush. It is putting it on a very, very personal level, when it should be seen on an objective level. Absolutely. Here God speaks. Yes. And here man must listen, not to sit in judgment on what God says, or to say it blessed my soul this day. Maybe it didn't. That's right. Maybe it brought conviction. Absolutely. May it, maybe it brought a knowledge of the shallowness of their lives. Absolutely. Well, not only is it presumptuous to assume that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to each Christian separately, and that basically goes back to the the, the, the Quaker idea of the mm-hmm. inner light, really, mm-hmm. but it's also assuming that the Spirit is going to tell the Spirit of God is going to tell us to do something different Absolutely. than, than the, the, that God has already given us in His Word. That That's there's right. somehow two versions of of what yes. the deity wants. That's right. Well, Calvin is so powerful on that in the Institutes. Um, when he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. People say, well, I need the Holy Spirit so that I can understand the Bible. Calvin said just the opposite. Get into the Word of God. That's yes. where the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit is in the Word of God. He's not somewhere abstract somewhere out here. Um, and Luther, despite the fact that he was far from perfect, understood that truth, at least in principle. The declaration of the Word of God is what is important. The declaration of the Word. And these ministers... 
rational. I could go on and on about this. That have prostituted themselves with all these sort of pragmatic sermons, you know, please the congregation sermons. They've prostituted their calling when they don't stand up and speak the infallible word of God. Well, perfectionism in particular has a very powerful influence in this country. It did also in Germany, but its greatest source of influence was in the Wesleyan uh, groups in the United States. They insisted that the works of righteousness were personal in the sense that they were no drinking, no smoking, no gambling, no uh, dancing, and so on and so forth. Now, some of those may be uh, practices to be avoided, maybe all of them, but the point is you're dealing with trifles there essentially. You're not dealing with the fact of man's rebellion against God and his refusal to obey the law of God. You're saying, in your personal life, you can be holier and purer if you don't do these things, and you've got to come apart from the world. Uh, Don't get involved too much in things, including politics, pull off to the side and uh, do a lot of praying. Yes. Separatism of an ungodly sort. That's right. Uh, we are told to separate ourselves from ungodly people within the church and ungodly churches. Yes. But uh, not from the ungodly in the world, else must we needs go out of this world, Paul says. We're in the world to conquer the world. They want separation from responsibility, Rush. That's what they want. Exactly. That's their idea of separation. Separation from responsibility. Well, the American Christian Church has been in the past the most powerful single force in the world, the most powerful force in history. It created a worldwide missionary movement in the last century which changed the face of the world. We're still coasting on some of the benefits of what the Christians of the last century and of pre-World War, World War One era did. Since then, we've been moving in the wrong direction. And we have not assumed a responsibility. We have stressed personal holiness to the exclusion of commanding men and nations with the holiness of God. And the result has been a growing irrelevance of the Christian church in the world today. We have today a remarkable fact. More than 50% of all adults 
profess to be Bible believers and born-again Christians. And never has the church been less relevant to the world or to the United States. This is why I regard these movements as disasters that have virtually destroyed Protestantism. And there are some scholars who believe that Protestantism is a spent force, a matter of history, because it has become like the monks of Athos in the Middle Ages, imitating Hindu mystics, contemplating their navel. The Eastern Orthodox Church actually condemned a prominent theologian for saying this naval contemplation was sinful. And that is still read in the the condemnation, the anathema, in the Eastern Orthodox Churches on a particular day every year. Well, we have too many naval contemplators. They think the be-all and end-all of God and of his kingdom and of Christ and of his work is their peace of mind, their soul satisfaction. And they could not be more wrong. It is frightening to realize how much we've gone astray. Our time is nearly up. Do you have a final comment or two to make? One thing, Rush. What's so the great irony is so many of these people will damn secularism but they don't realize it's their very policy of retreat that permits secularism in the first place. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening. And my special thanks to Susan Claire Lopel for a very important question. Thank you and God bless you all.